You're listening to Radio Catskill. Support comes from Tavern on Main Bar and Restaurant in Jeffersonville. Comforting American fare in a cozy neighborhood atmosphere. Menus and takeout orders available online. TavernOnMainNY.com Support for Radio Catskill comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wallenpapik, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com From Dog Mountain Lodge, providing dog boarding and grooming, also boarding cats, birds, and other exotic pets. Located in Keshekta, New York, and on the web at DogMountainLodge.com. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I'm Sabrina and welcome to this virtual episode of Trailer Talk. I welcome you to the kitchen table of the Travel Trailers. We come together as community. My guests today are Sims Foster, who co-founded with his wife, Kirsten Harlow Foster, Foster Supply Hospitality, a small hotel and restaurant company in the Sullivan County Catskills of upstate New York. We're going to be focusing on a single bite, which is the nonprofit organization founded by them. I will also be speaking with Audrey Garrow, who is the executive director of A Single Bite. We're going to talk about this food-based mission that was created to help feed our neighbors in the community. And I want to welcome you both to this virtual kitchen table of my trailer talk. I'd love for you, Sims, to begin with what is a single bite? How did this emerge from Foster Supply Hospitality? Well, Sabrina, it's great to see you. Um, we need to get you a trailer background, though, right? Yes! So that, you know, <laughs> I missed the trailer, but those times are coming again soon. Thank you for having us. To answer your question, a single bite started four years ago, over four years ago now, almost five. You know, Kirsten and I were looking uh, to fortify our commitment to the community, not just through opening businesses and, and trying on the, on the private sector, uh, but also looking on how we deepen uh, value to the community. It really resonated with me and then with us, uh, Kirsten and I, about doing something uh, to counteract the fact that Sullivan County, the place we love so much, continually ranked 61st out of 62 in the annual rankings of health. And as I skimmed through uh, that document and saw, you know, access to health care and transportation, all things that I know about but really have no business trying to uh, affect, I don't have any expertise in it, uh, I got to the food part and I said, ah, you know, if there's one thing I know, I think at this point it's food. And so that's where we focused and we saw the immense food insecurity issue that was happening in our county. And we said, well, maybe there's something we can do about that. And so we started an educational program in Livingston Manor Central School, where I graduated a long time ago. My father, uh, Barry, graduated um, in 1960. And my mother was a first grade teacher for 36 years at the school. And so it just became natural to go and talk to, talk to the school and say, hey, how about doing a program where we come in and, and talk to students, um, not just once, not twice, but put together a real curriculum where we just talk to them about the choices between real food and processed food and really underline the fact that they have a choice, that what they put in their mouths is entirely up to them, that they don't get fed at the kitchen table anymore. At the time, Kirsten and I had our first child who was, you know, I was feeding him at the kitchen table. And when I used that one with the eighth graders, they all laughed. And I said, so you do choose. You do choose daily, multiple times over and over again. So we built a curriculum around uh, that. We hope to follow the students, not just for that one class or four classes, where we talk to them about food in, 
in the school. We brought them to our uh, one of our restaurants to serve them lunch. And then we also brought them to New York City uh, to have lunch with a celebrity chef friend of mine because they're on TV. It matters more what they say. So why not? Um, so uh, our friend Jeffrey Zakarian, uh, our friend Dale Talday, we were lining up Marcus Samuelson for this year. You know, that's the program. And that's where we started. So about four years ago, that's when a single fight began. And how have you adapted? What happened when the pandemic hit? I'm going to throw this to Audrey, but I'm going to set her up first, though, right? Okay, um, right prior to the pandemic, last fall, just, just a, a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, this wonderful human being, Audrey Garrow, who, who we had known, came and had a coffee and, and, and said, you know, I'm, I'm looking for the next thing in, in, in her life. And I said, oh, well, I, we at that point were just in Livingston Manor. And so we robustly last fall said, set this goal to get to every eighth grader with our educational program in Sullivan County. So all this energy went into that and Audrey was well on her way and she was fundraising and we were figuring out complicated logistics. And then guess what? No more school. <laughs> and what was in front of us was where we have been the last six months um, and so I'll, I'll throw it to Audrey and let her go from there. Wonderful. Thank you, Sims. I'd like to share with our listeners that the number of meals that you've prepared and deliver, is it up to 50,000 at this point? That's right. 50,000 servings between March and, and just last week, we, we came to that milestone. And it has been uh, quite a journey from where we were serving single bites of food in the classroom to students um, exposing them to new foods and encouraging them to try new things and also to understand uh, the value of, of real food to where we realized that there were entire families who were struggling to put food on the table. So that shift and, and the relationship that we had with the, the school districts in a, a very um, a rural uh, county where transportation is an issue and where students found themselves not only removed from the classroom and their colleagues and their, their peers and their teachers, but also the nutrition that they normally would get in the cafeteria. And in some cases, students who who were um, taking backpacks of food home on the weekends. So we look at maybe 20% of the families in this county that were already experiencing food insecurity and how that was impacted by COVID, people losing their jobs. As I said, students not having access to the nutrition that they really counted on in the schools. I think the other thing that's really interesting and admirable is that Kirsten and Sims um, in their foster supply properties, they had committed to keeping all of their employees on the payroll when COVID hit. And so as Sims is want to say, people in the, in the culinary business, um, having cooks not cooking, idle hands is not a good idea. So Sims and Kirsten quickly um, asked uh, their chefs to start cooking for these families that really needed food. And we started to identify in partnership with the school districts, with school nurses, with social workers and teachers, people who really knew these families and, and who was at risk for real hunger in our county. And we uh, basically started putting food on buses where we could. Uh, school work was going out. Um, there were breakfast and lunch sandwiches going out to these families. But what we started to send were prepared restaurant quality dinners. And those dinners were designed to feed families of up to five people. And if there were teenage boys in the household, or if there were extra people, mouths to feed, grandparents, we sent them two meals. And, and, and in most cases, we were sending two meals a week up until the school closed for the summer in June. At that point, we continued uh, full force with the program um, partnering with volunteers, up to 75 volunteers who really took the place of those school buses and made sure that we got food out to people who, as the summer went on, were experiencing 
unemployment for the first time in their lives. They also had their kids home 24-7, no camp, um, obviously, uh, you know, no summer school. And people, I think, really started to, to struggle with how, how they, were, they were going to figure out not only how to get food, they were making decisions, hard decisions between gas money, rent money, and money to actually feed their families. So filling those gaps and having, helping to address food insecurity really became as core to our mission as, as providing uh, information and, and inspiration about real food. As this program with a single bite has expanded and as you've become increasingly aware of the food insecurity, the needs, the struggles of so many of our community members, have you shifted in the way you're thinking about the intersections of needs within the community and how you, through a single bite and through the umbrella, foster supply hospitality, can somehow re-envision how our community's needs are served? It's a great question. Um, and the answer is, is absolutely. You know, it started reading this report and seeing food insecurity. I'll be honest, I regret deeply that I put that in a place of, of academic, of something that existed, um, but I had, no, I had no connection to it in, re, in my reality. And so the pandemic came and what became an acute problem because people, as Audrey said, well, just going out was an issue. Uh, so that's, we, we were reaching out like, like many in the country. Thank God we were reaching out. What we did was, it was what it was, but many, many were doing it in many forms. Um, and that was wonderful. But once we saw the real issue here and that this was issue, an issue before that acute period and it's going to be after. I couldn't put my head back in the sand. And so there is a visceral, immediate need that everybody in Sullivan County, you, Sabrina, me, Audrey, everybody lives very close to someone who tonight may go to bed with not enough food and is not sure of what tomorrow brings. And that just simply cannot be. I don't know how to fix it nationally or globally, at least not yet, but I know that we can fix it in Sullivan County. Um, we now know uh, about the problem, but we also know how to get, get it, the food produced and how to get it to people. And this is a complicated logistical problem, but we're becoming very good at it. And so our march is now to eradicate anyone going to bed in Sullivan County with a food insecurity as fast as we can, and then also educate continually for the long term, because we're here for the long term, so that people are better prepared, the next generation is better prepared to hopefully never be in that place. And so that's what we're doing. You know, we faced that choice after the acute period, and the decision-making process lasted about 45 seconds uh, to say, even amidst the figuring out how we're going to you know, run our company and do everything else that we're doing. This, this can't fall. It can't be just a chapter, right? This has got to be a novel that gets to the last page with a, with a conclusive end to this problem. And you're describing, Sims, a feeling of interconnectedness, of uh, an awareness that hit you hard. That, as you said, one of my neighbors, your neighbors, Audrey's neighbors, people listening, there are people all around us who are suffering. And I agree, it's, it's absolutely unacceptable. And now that the situation has become so extreme and the pandemic has raised our awareness to these acute issues of, of struggle and deficit for so many of us, I am wondering... Sims, and then Audrey as well. What is it in you? Sims, I knew your father, Barry Foster. He was beloved in Sullivan County and then Livingston Manor, New York, where you grew up. You have talked about him as part of this legacy for your company and also for this aspiration to bring more connectedness and possibility. So I'm wondering if you can share with us something about that 
Well, you did know my father. And so his presence is with us, with me for sure. I, I know that Audrey knew my dad and, and, and so many did. And, and as a lifelong educator, as a lifelong teacher, as a someone who looked at everybody as an equal, um, regardless of background, race, economics, uh, people were people to him. And more than ever, that it reminds me of how lucky I was to be informed by uh, a man like that, and certainly my mother as well. So, you know, this this just feels like it's what it's supposed to be. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's not about I. It's a, It's about we. What's important in life is that you're here in service to others. You know, a lifelong Rotarian, as was my grandfather, you know, who... You know, the the Rotarian model, it's so simple, right? Service above self. These are things that people live with. And and in small communities, I think it's easier to find and it's easier to rally. Um, Although I I don't know that I should make that judgment. I guess that's my background on it. But, um, you know, that's why this we're doing this. It's because it needs to get done. And we seem to be the right people for this particular task to help our community. And it really isn't much more complicated, but I'm very anxious to hear Audrey's answer too. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Audrey. Just in the way of of background, I've been in the not-for-profit sector all of my career in healthcare, in the arts. And as, as Sim said, was really looking for a way to connect more deeply with my community. I've lived in Sullivan County now for almost 20 years. And, and was looking to, to find a way, as cliche as it seems, to really make a difference, to affect the life, the quality of life, the, the outlook on, on, on the future of individuals that, that were my neighbors, and to use the skill set that I have to also empower other people to understand their capacity for affecting, affecting others around them. And <laughs> it's been, um, I can say, deeply fulfilling uh, personally, but over and above that, those 50,000 meals, those are bellies that we filled. Those are our hearts that we help to understand that someone cares. They're not just children. You know, they're grandmothers who worry about feeding their kids we have focused on, on children, certainly because of, of where our roots are in, in terms of education, but we're now feeding veterans who don't have the capacity to cook for themselves. We are feeding people who are, um, are maybe transient or in a situation that they've never been in before where, where they, they don't have access maybe to a food pantry or to some of the services that, that others can access, which are limiting in themselves in terms of the, the nutritional value of food that's out there. What we're able to do in terms of filling people's hearts and stomachs is, is really a matter of pride. And, and the fact that, that Sims and Kirsten um, have engaged every corner of the community, every corner of their company in this pursuit to, to take care of their neighbors is um, it helps me to, to feel like I can go out and ask anybody to help us, any volunteer, anybody who has a truck, anybody who has some extra vegetables. And we, we really do benefit from the entire community in terms of being able to deliver directly to people's households. And I will say this, there's been times when a volunteer couldn't deliver food and I've gotten in my car with a couple of meals And knowing that there is not an adult present in a household and having that door open and seeing a child's face and having them put their hands out and putting food in their hands is, um, it's probably the greatest gift that anyone can give to themselves, really, other than cooking for your family or or gardening and, and being able to grow a vegetable yourself to be able to feed your neighbor that can that can take you a long way in your life in terms of uh, the happiness bank. You're describing a love for our neighbors, for our community. I'm wondering if, because 
there are so many separations in this county between those who have and those who don't. And there's huge space in between. I'm just, and because you have access to both, how are you, Sims and Audrey, thinking about this in terms of a possible way to integrate those who may have more with those who have less in terms of a more inclusive community? Well, I think one of the ways is as we start to talk to people about the need to raise money to be able to do what we do, and, and, and we really solicit contributions being very upfront about the fact that we just need money for food and packaging. The rest of it, volunteers and, and the generosity of the fosters and, and others in the community, kind of that takes care of itself. But when you start to talk to donors, and these are people who do have a little bit of, of income, and they certainly are interested in philanthropy to some degree, those people are the same people that say to us, I want to volunteer. I want to deliver meals. I want to see not only where my dollars are going, but I want to feel the good work in a very real way. And so that's one way that we connect. I would also remark on the fact that there are people that that visit foster supply properties that don't even live in Sullivan County, but who have an appreciation for the beauty and, and as I said, the quality of life that, that is possible here. They're very generous. You know, they understand that that they've had an exceptional experience. They also look to their left and their right when they're driving up and down the streets and they see, you know, the beautiful home and then they see the home that maybe they, they wonder who lives there. And so their eyes are open, those visitors, as are the employees who are cooking with us, who are uh, talking to their guests about what the company is committed to. And so I think in that way, that, that connectivity does happen. It happens with school teachers who go and have, you know, dinner maybe once, once in a while at, at a property. And, and then um, we'll go back and talk to their entire school uh, about their teachers association, about making a gift because they get it. They get it. And so I think it happens quite organically in a way, just because of the nature of, of the county and also the people that visit here and live here. Yeah, you know, I, I bought I bought myself some time there. So, <laughs> yeah. no. good job, Audrey. Thank you. <laughs> no, what she said was spot on to help me formulate my. I've never been involved with another not for profit. I've been too busy, I guess, you know, figuring out the other side. So I don't have any reference. But what has struck me is we do have wealthy people that have donated to a single bite. And we have people who are certainly not wealthy. To see the range, as you said, from one to the other and everything in between, the person that mows my mother's yard and then a family whose name is synonymous in American history with extreme wealth, donating in Sullivan County to this cause, leads me to believe that there is something about the idea of our neighbor needing and needing food, right? Needing tonight more in their belly resonates in a human, resonates in everyone's humanity. And again, I don't know if other places have that same, maybe they do. My naivety led me to see that how powerful it was to see the notes from all the different segments to say, I get it. I get it. Here's how I can help. I can help with $5. I can help with $5,000. And, and a commitment to this community from every different segment, from people here, as Audrey said, 36 hours, the people here, 36 months, the people here, 36 years, everyone feeling committed uh, to solving this problem in the community. How can people donate? Definitely a singlebite.org. It's a singlebite.org. Um, if you're in Sullivan County, you could stop by the Claire at at our offices, uh, Foster Supply, where we're using the kitchen to make all this food now uh, with a check. Um, you can mail it to... You can mail it to P.O. Box 595, Youngsville, New York, 12791. <laughs> Every way. So you can be anywhere Every- in the world and you yes. certainly go to yeah. the website, asinglebite.org. And before we wrap up, Audrey and Sims just a couple of sentences about what it is that 
you love about Sullivan County and why you're committed to improving the quality of life through your not-for-profit organization, A Single Bite? Look out the window every day, no matter what the season, (laughs) no matter um, what the activity is that's happening, um, whether it's the deer running by or the the paving truck, um, you know, there's, there's always some type of, of, of activity and industry happening here. And it's all driven by those very few people actually that live uh, within the county's borders. What do I love about living here? I love the fact that I have space to breathe. I love that I have access to healthy food. I love that my neighbors are caring for each other and, and for for the environment as well, keeping beautiful what, what we all appreciate here. And over and above all of that, I, I love the sense of place and history and the fact that, that you can stay connected to, to the, the most modern and urban city in the world and be you know, less than two hours away and have the serenity of looking at the stars and listening to the to the birds, and at at the same time, you know, feel connected to the rest of the world because they're visiting us, and we can we can go out and and be a part of the world too. Yeah, I concur. I think that we all live here. It's very hard to live here and not not be inspired by the Earth's beauty for sure. And so I I agree with all of that. I also am motivated by the opportunity of the future of this county. Um, I deeply love the heritage. My family's been here for over a hundred years. We're part of several chapters, but I would be lying to say that growing up here, loving it here, but being conflicted about why it wasn't progressing and using all of its amazing assets to become a more robust place uh, motivates me as well. I want to I, I want to retain what we all love, and I want to add to it by demolishing uh, by using the communities to demolish hunger, by creating an economic fabric that supports everyone, and that that we don't fall victim to the decimation that went on for a generation. Uh, to pr- create a foundation for this county that. Uh, honors it, but also moves it forward. Um, it's a place that I love and that I also see so much more that we can all be doing. And there's a great satisfaction to me, hopefully at the end saying, look what we did. I want to thank you both for joining me at this virtual kitchen table and for sharing your mission, your commitment, your love for your community in Sullivan County, New York, and your focus with a single bite, which is tackling food insecurity in our community. And certainly this is something that is being faced throughout the country. So I want to thank you both. I've been speaking with Sims Foster, who's the co-founder of Foster Supply Hospitality, a small hotel and restaurant company based in the Sullivan County Catskills of New York and Audrey Garrow, who is the executive director of A Single Bite. To find out more about A Single Bite, please go to their website. There's incredible information there at asinglebite.org. Thank you both. Thanks, Sabrina. Thank you. You're welcome. From the kitchen table out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. I listen to Bullseye so that I can pretend that I actually know what's going on in the culture and find books and movies I love. Thanks. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week on Bullseye, actor Alfred Molina from Spider-Man No Way Home and hundreds of other movies and TV shows... 
plus Edie Patterson from the comedy The Righteous Gemstones. That's on the next Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Estás escuchando Radio Caskill, radio pública para The Caskill y el noreste de Pensilvania. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. Well, it is wintertime in so many ways. So during this winter of the soul, as I think about going into this underworld and rising up again. So many are rising up, are resisting, are creatively finding ways to protect each other. So I am thinking about winter in all of its many facets and the renewal that is emerging so courageously that says yes to care, to compassion, to protecting each other, and to living in a democratic society. Winter, when I think of winter, there is a connection to extinction and to longing and to rebirth and to a hibernation and to grief and to a waiting and to a searching and to a sort of a renovation, an elongation of time, a standing still. And it's wondering and being amazed at what is going on underneath the surface and to see the wild ducks landing on the pond. And winter in the Northeast is a long period of time. And I think of shoveling and my wood-burning stove and sitting there gazing at the flames and think of old father time and... Ready? Hi! Krista Gromowski. So what do you think about winter? Did you grow up in the cold? Did you grow up in the Northeast? Yeah, I grew up in the Northeast, and that's one of the reasons why I enjoy staying in the Northeast, is to experience all seasons. And winter is one of my favorite seasons. My birthday is in winter. Uh, well, actually, it's, it's on the cusp of when winter begins. It's right before Christmas. The thing about winter that I think I like to be outside, I like to snowshoe, cross-country ski, hike, walk the dog. Uh, be out in the elements and experience, you know, the cold and, and some of the things that sometimes people think um, we need to retreat inside during this time. But a lot of people think of winter as a time of uh, dormancy or when things are really sort of dead and bleak. Um, but it, I really think it's a time of rejuvenation when we're sort of interior and we're building upon, we're, we're sort of like restoring ourselves, and spring is right there about to burst. So it, it, it's sort of like you can misperceive it sometimes because um, the way that it looks is very bleak, but what's really happening under the surface is very um, full of possibility. And, um, you know, so spring gets all the credit, <laughs> but, but winter is what, what that comes from. Louis Torres. Lewis, any thoughts on winter? I don't really got like cold or I don't like snow, but it's Sullivan County for you. So what about shoveling? Oh, that took a real toll on my back. <laughs> I said we had about three feet. Uh, it felt like three feet. And uh, I do my own backyard and I help my mother shovel and shovel her out. I can't wait till it's over and I love the summer a whole lot. <laughs> More than cold. <laughs> You long for the sun, and you long for the spring and the summer. I wish I could move to Puerto Rico, but there's really no jobs out there or anything to really do besides the warmth. You're Puerto Rican? Yes. So you would hope to be able to move there? Do you have family, friends there? Yeah, I have my father, uncles, cousins, and so on and so forth. Yeah. It rains a lot, but it's all right. I'll take the rain before the snow. Thank you so much, Louis. My name is Sharon Zoe Hacked. And I'd just like to say a few words about winter, because for wi me, winter is about slumber, about death, about dying, about the potential for revitalization, about my own cronism, 
about white, about black, about night, about the wolf moon, and how we might see tomorrow. How we might see tomorrow? In what sense? In every sense, because after winter comes spring. All right, and you mentioned cronism, so could you share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, it's, I think it's been very difficult for me to move into the passage of being a crone and not being a young woman. And in some way, I associate winter with my age rather than with my youth. You associate winter with your age. And so how has that been then for you to move into this phase then of your personhood, you know, your life? Uh, if you could share a little bit, when did that transition happen for you? I think it started um, at the end of my academic career in, in Rhode Island. I was about 50 years old, and I realized how difficult it was to no longer be a student, but to be the mentor. And I started to really look, look at myself as an older woman, especially in relationship to all the young pre- and postdoctoral students that I was working with. And it really redefined me as a woman, that I was no longer a girl, I was no longer a young woman, I'd already been a mother, and that what was left was to be a crone. And I spent a lot of time examining what that meant to me. And what does it mean to you to be an older woman? And at what age could you identify an age where that transition occurred for you? It definitely came to me and continued to grow as I was in my 50s. I would say it really started around my birthday, and, and I'm a summer baby, so around the summer of my 50th birthday, and it continued to grow. And a crone to me, different from the other passages that I've lived through, is one where I really do have the wisdom now that I wish I had when I was a girl, but I don't have the stamina. So it would be really wonderful if cronism was valued in our society in, in such a way that I could feel lifted up rather than uh, burdened with my age. Here's a poem by Mary Oliver on winter's margin. On winter's margin, see the small birds now with half-forged memories come flocking home to gardens famous for their charity. The green globes broken, vines like tangled veins hang at the entrance to the silent wood. With half a loaf, I am the prince of crumbs. By snows down, the birds amassed will sing, like children for their sire to walk abroad. But what I love is the gray, stubborn hawk who floats alone beyond the frozen vines. And what I dream of are the patient deer who stand on legs like reeds and drink that wind. They are what saves the world, who choose to grow thin to a starting point beyond this squalor. I'm Marcia Nehemiah. I would like to talk about extinction. Some scientists say we're at the brink of the sixth extinction in the history of the universe, or the Earth, I should say. And to me, this causes such a tremendous amount of grief that it's almost unbearable. Like, I feel like I want to cry right now because the treasures of, that the Earth has given us, the precious treasures of the Earth, are disappearing so fast. It's such a, a rate that it um, is a real tragedy to me, and um, I don't know how we can stop it, but I hope that we do. Thank you. Anne Bruning. Anne, do you think at all about extinction, what is on its way out, what has already left us about the natural world, the environment? environmental thing I would say would be global warming, actually, because it, I think it's... Um, it's getting worse and people don't realize how bad it is getting because other countries where it's been so cold like we used to get here they would get six foot of snow every winter the flowers are growing there is no snow anymore and that's in Great Britain and I just talked to my brother and he said all his plants are coming up and they got no snow so people who say there's no global warming there is so what about extinction then? What impact then what's happening with the environment has on the natural world, on the animals, on the plants? Well, I would say mainly like Alaska. If it gets warmer there and all these icebergs start to melt, the polar bear is up there, it's going to have nowhere to live. Because I, w I actually was in Alaska two years ago and watch the icebergs actually like explode and just fall into the water. Now, if they all disappear, where is the polar bears going to live? And when, as I say, we were on the cruise to Alaska and it was so beautiful, but to think maybe 
20, 30 years down the road, what we've seen will all be melted. It won't be there no more. And that is sad. You know, it's a memory I will never forget what I saw, but to know that in a few years that won't be there anymore. Do you think that humanity, people, are the cause of it? Oh, definitely. Yes. Yes. Because there's a lot of factories and stuff and everything goes into the air, out these chimneys, and and they don't realise what the, the pollution that's going into the air. And that is what's doing a lot of this damage. So how does that make you feel then, that animals are dying out because of what's happening with the environment? I think it's very sad. It really is because there'll be nowhere for them to go and they'll just die and then they'll be extinct, there'll be no more there'll be no more animals, no more bears And so something like that then, you mentioned the polar bears them going extinct and watching that now in your lifetime and having been in Alaska and seeing the icebergs melt, so how does that make you feel then, how does that impact your everyday life. Actually it makes me mad because nobody's doing anything about it because I would say 9 out of 10 people don't believe it's actually happening and it is happening it's happening right in front of our eyes and we don't see it and it would be very sad for our grandchildren to grow up and never ever see any bears or anything polar bears. You couldn't take them to show them like I've seen them you couldn't take the kids because they won't be around anymore How does talking about extinction in the natural world, how does that make you then feel about humanity? Actually very sad. The way the state the world's got to is very, very sad. Starlings in Winter by Mary Oliver. Chunky and noisy, but with stars in their black feathers, they spring from the telephone wire, and instantly they are acrobats in the freezing wind. And now, in the theater of air, they swing over buildings, dipping and rising. They float like one stippled star that opens, becomes for a moment fragmented, then closes again. And you watch, and you try, but you simply can't imagine how they do it, with no articulated instruction, no pause. Only the silent confirmation that they are this notable thing, this wheel of many parts that can rise and spin over and over again, full of gorgeous life. Ah, world, what lessons you prepare for us, even in the leafless winter, even in the ashy city. I am thinking now of grief and of getting past it. I feel my boots trying to leave the ground. I feel my heart pumping hard. I want to think again of dangerous and noble things. I want to be light and frolicsome. I want to be improbable, beautiful, and afraid of nothing, as though I had wings. Michelle, longing. Do you long for things? How does it feel too long? I long for things every day. I think life is a state of perpetual longing. What does that feel like? Is today a day when you are longing for uh, many things? Does it feel comfortable too long? Does that mean that things aren't okay right now in the present? What What is longing for you? I don't think longing, I think people think of longing as a, put a negative connotation on longing. Not necessarily so. What are some of the things that you're, you're longing for? Peace, love, and financial freedom. So what is the longing then for you? Peace, love, financial freedom, so... Peace in the world, peace of mind, um, which I could gain through financial freedom. Um, Love, a love, a satisfying love, a long-term love. And financial freedom not just for myself, because that seems to be the story of the whole world right now, looking for financial freedom, longing for financial freedom. Is longing then for you something that becomes overwhelming? Does it mean that you're not getting what you want? Or is it something that takes you to some sort of action? Ah, definitely to action, if that's possible. You can't create a love, but you can go out um, and follow uh, those longing feelings of finding financial freedom. There are, yes, you can follow through on that. So how's today feeling for you then? Uh, Like I need to take a lot more action. 
Snow can wait. I forgot my mittens. Wipe my nose. Get my new boots on. I get a little warm in my heart when I think of winter. I put my hand in my father's clothes. I run off where the drifts get deeper. Sleeping Beauty trips me with a frown. I hear a voice. You must learn to stand up for yourself, 'cause I can't always be.
I'm Cass Collins. I was thinking about winter. This winter has been such a beautiful winter in so many ways. Looking out at the river, freezing and thawing again, and watching the eagles uh, from my window. But winter has not always been like that for me. It's it's often a really hard time. I feel. Um, I feel like I'm really a bear in the winter, like I, I need to be in a cave somewhere, and uh, so it it's nice to have a different feeling about winter. I I don't know what it is exactly, except that I've been in the country more, and um, the windows in my home uh, just give me that light. Even the the winter light, it's it's a white light. And um, I guess it really changes my feeling about the experience. And when I'm in the city, I get about two hours of sunlight in my apartment from two to four. But um, the rest of the time, it really does feel like a cave. <laughs> so, yeah, that's winter. Hi, Sabrina. I'm Will Conway. I live in Mongot Valley. I'm a local poet and writer and a gardener. So thoughts about extinction, animals that have already gone, animals that are on their way out, and to be living in a time when we are aware of this history, this lineage, and what's happening with our environment. I've been thinking about this subject for a very long time, since the 60s, when I realized that the last fresh air was disappearing um, out in northern New Mexico. Um, We're missing the animals in our hearts, just as we miss ourselves losing our environment piece by piece. The acceleration of this process is overwhelming all of us. Uh, We are humbled to be in a world where we can still make a change and live lives of dignity in the midst of this uh, seemingly ongoing disaster where there's, if nothing else, sadness and tears about this subject. I'm an animal lover. I've been a vegetarian for many years. It just adds to the uh, perspective on uh, sensitivity towards all life. Uh, All life is precious. I would give every animal that we see uh, as much natural wildness as we can deliver because that's what we all need. We come from a root of wildness. That's our nature. We should respect it. I feel so many animals on the precipice, uh, elephants, uh, tigers, uh, animals that are, you know, generally these large animals. I, I have a fondness, a totem sensitivity towards cats in general, so I would say the tiger is probably the one that would be the one I'd feel the most sensitivity to. Uh, I would love to see one <laughs> up close and personal. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Sabrina. Nice opportunity. Hi, my name is Nancy Wells, and I know this is a rather odd thing about extinction, but for me, the thing that I see uh, that is leaving our planet or leaving everything has to do more or less with the politics of what are going on, which means that there's an extinction of um, trust and and, um, doing things for the planet and caring really about healthcare and caring about the things that matter as human beings. So what I see that's, that's disappearing as a child, I really did believe that, that the government and people tried to do the best thing for the people. Now I've become uh, rather, I don't know if the word is bitter or I just don't, I, I don't see it and it's very sad. So why, it, it, yes, the eagles are going and I feel terrible about that. But so are the human beings that really care about the planet, about the people themselves. Hi, I'm Sandy Long. You've written a poem about longing, and uh, it accompanies a sculpture. Uh, So if you could share with us this poem and uh, what it is about longing. The poem is called Longing, and this is it. You almost don't notice the dove her plaintive, repetitive call coming toward the spell you're under, with the flowers taking most of your attention as the sun stirs something they've been storing for a moment just like this. Kissed by golden throb, you lean in to remember where it was you first 
her dove and mourned to be touched there. So this poem is really, um, in the broad sense, about how life and all of the things that go on in a life can distract you from the thing that really calls you most. And you can forget that thing, and even hearing that thing or sensing that thing, you may not even notice it. But once in a while, the sound comes through. And in this case, the sound is the dove, that sort of tubular, mournful sound. And it does touch you in a way that reminds you that there is that thing that is still there and that still rings for your heart. That thing that you're referring to, Sandy, that thing that you long for, is that a comfort to long for something? Or is it a distraction? Or is it an annoyance? Or something that could be upsetting? It's actually, for me, um, a call from the true self. It is the self that we forget in the distractions of everything else, even beautiful things like flowers and gardens. Even the things that, the the most obvious negative things take our attention um, strongly. But then even when you're lost in a beautiful thing, you can sometimes forget that there is that true self that you are most connected to. And we forget that, I think. We get distracted. I think it is a longing to reconnect with the self. I think of going down into the underworld of Persephone and the grief of her mother, Demeter, and that time of going inside, and then that rising up and that bursting. And even when I was living in Los Angeles, and people say that there is no winter there, but there is. There is a slight shift, and there is something internal that happens. I remember that the roses do bloom there year-round, but it's better for those rose bushes if they're cut back and if they're made to stop blooming, that they take a rest so that they don't exhaust themselves. Here I am in upstate New York in the Sullivan County Catskills looking out my windows at what is a beautiful day. Ready? Hi! From the kitchen table out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power, Tori Amos, Winter, from a Tori Amos collection, Tales of a Librarian. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Resolve to lose a few pounds this year? How about a few thousand? Donate your old car, truck, or RV. Drop a lot of unwanted weight from your garage and support public radio. We accept any vehicle, running or not, including cars, trucks, boats, RVs, motorcycles, and more. Donate at WJFFRadio.org. From river to river, mountain to mountain, this is Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. On air, online, on your smartphone and on your smart speaker. Radio Catskill. Support comes from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John.Ferrara557 at gmail.com. Support comes from the Vintage House on Main Street, Jeffersonville, featuring eclectic furnishings, clothing, antiques, records, and books in a charming 19th century house. VintageHouseJville.com and on Instagram at VintageHouseJville.